Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, so before I get started, I want to tell you about an upcoming Zoom course that I'm going to be offering. It's a four-part course, and it's called Cultivating Mythic Vision for Mythic Times. And if you've been listening recently, you know that this is a theme that I've been talking about, that these are mythic times, that what we're faced with are mythic challenges. And in these mythic times, it can be very helpful to explore on a deeper level what we are called to do, what we are longing for, and what the myths have to teach us about what is required of us in such mythic times. It's going to be a four-part series. There are going to be visual components, lecture components, discussion, question, and answer components. It's going to take place the first four Thursdays in September, but it's also going to be available if you sign up for the course and then can't make it to any of the live sessions. It'll be available in recorded format as well. So I'm really hoping that you'll join, and if you're interested in joining or in finding out more, you can send me an email at josh.shry at gmail.com. That's J-O-S-H dot S-C-H-R-E-I at gmail.com. And I can send you more information and a link to sign up and all that good stuff. So cultivating mythic vision for mythic times, understanding the core experiential and transformational themes of myth and their applicability now. So last time on the podcast, I spoke a bit about longing in the context of the devotional traditions of India, how this is a really salient time to be asking ourselves what we truly long for, how longing and the cathartic consummation of that longing form a basic pulse of our being. Our consciousness itself pulses in waves of longing and release. Longing is the foundation of the dynamic action of the mind and heart, from short-term distracted ripples of want, I want this, I want that, to long-term journeys of the heart towards what we want for ourselves, our families, our communities, our nations, our world. We structure our minds and lives around longing. Cultures who were paying attention saw this cycle of longing reflected in moons, in bellies, in harvests, in yolks that burst from cracking eggs, in the rhythm of shedding fur, in the presence of blood in both birth and death. The old gods, if you notice, spend a whole lot of time fucking, eating, killing, because union and separation is the basic dynamic of the manifest world. Zeus is a rapist, it's easy to cry now, and a lot of Christian Puritans cried that too, just so you know, and miss the deeper energetic of his exploits. The universe is continually consummating, joining together and ripping itself apart in a great festival of want. Which is why so much attention is paid in those myths to birth and death, sex and food, blood, milk, moons, suns, pulses, spiraling trajectories of longing, songs of eternal and irrepressible want. The cultures who were paying attention harnessed this longing cycle. It became the substrate of ritual. Why do we need to do ritual? 
why do it? Why should I starve myself for days and dance for hours and hours? Because I feel separate and I long to feel whole. I long to be joined with the universal. I long for union, for consummation. And at the climax of the ritual, I long to be born again into this world, this time with new eyes. The fact that ritual harnesses the very fluids of longing, sweat, milk, blood, water, is not an accident. This world drips with the fluids of want. We need to understand these fluid cycles that define our being. We need to understand blood and milk and sweat, because we are subject to these great moon tides of want. If we understand these tides and harness them, if we ritualize this want, it's less likely to express in unhealthy ways. This is key to understanding how many cultures have dealt with want. Shed enough sweat and the online shopping seems less important. Sing enough and we no longer want to get up in someone's face on social media. Even the renunciates spend hours and hours per day cleansing, sweating, redirecting fluids because we don't just snap our fingers and rid ourselves of want. Longing rafts the rivers of our bloodstream and so we harness want. There are some who would love to just make that longing go away. Why? Because want, and therefore life, is messy. Once in India, I saw a goat that had just given birth. Its placenta was still hanging out of it, trailing behind it like four feet. Crows were gathered around, pecking at the placenta as it tumbled through the dust. There's an image for you. Wouldn't it be easier, some traditions ask, to get out of this bloody cycle of desire? It's understandable why longing or want or desire gets a bad rap. I mean, look what this world of constant want has wrought. What drove the colonists on their mad sea voyages to plunder and maim and enslave but a great want, an obsessive glint of gold just out of reach? What led to all that historical sacking of towns and slaying of men and raping of women but an uncontrolled primal want? So yeah, if only we could just get rid of the want. But getting rid of the want means, in a sense, getting rid of life. For the continuation of life is driven by want. And when we simply deny want, we may in fact be separating ourselves further from what is, rather than realizing it in its totality, a universe eternally pulsing from oneness into specificity and back from unity into separation and unity again, from longing to consummation to longing to consummation in an eternal quivering pulse. And in this vision of a sublime and eternal longing firing all things, the mother is no less than the monk. The great hunt is no less than the meditation cushion. The camphor girl peddling little pellets of fire outside the holy temple is no less than the sacred image at the center of the temple itself because all exists within the cycle of the great goddess whose very name is desire. (music) 
Today in the world, we find ourselves in extreme polarizations of want. We live in a culture fueled by impulsive want. The tides of want are unquiet. There's a hollow roar of desperation to our want. There's an addictive gleam in our eyes as we gobble up the world. If only we could approach the situation rationally, some say. The numbers tell us we can't continue to consume at this rate. The spreadsheets say if we offset this with this and approach this this way, and such protestations are like tiny pebbles in a great chasm of unfulfilled want. If only we could just want less. But that doesn't get to the root of the issue. For, to put it simply, if we really want the planet to survive, we have to want to be here. We have to want to be here. Not just to eradicate desire, an impulse which finds very little reflection within the cycles of nature itself, but to redirect it. We have to want to be present. We have to want life. We have to want to know the force that drives the green fuse that Dylan Thomas talked about. We have to find, one could say, a healthy relationship with the goddess whose name is Longing. A brief history of want, longing, and its place in cosmos and consciousness. This time on The Emerald. We're going to start with a simple word in Sanskrit, kama. It's quite a word, kama. Longing, want, desire, pleasure, love in some translations. And it's been around for a very long time. In fact, it's been with us right from the start. One of the creation hymns of the Rigveda puts it front and center as the very thing that moved to jumpstart this universe on its journey. Imagine that. There was neither existence nor non-existence then. Were there unfathomable waters? Were there powers? Was there fertile ground of some kind and the seed to fertilize that ground? What was it? What moved? What stirred? What tore it all open? What bridged the yawning chasm between non-existence and existence? Kama. The universe itself in this vision was born from a first impulse of desire, the one consciousness wanting, longing, desiring to be many. And that want was a flame, and the heat of that flame birthed the cosmos the same way we envision the heat of the Big Bang cooking up all the first stars. The Rigveda says, Thereafter rose desire in the beginning, desire the primal seed and germ of spirit. The one longed to be many, so the one heated itself up through its own heat and became all things. So the impulse of creation itself in this vision is a great want, 
And from that spark of wanting, the one creates a universe that itself always wants, a mouth, say the Vedas, that always feeds, a fire that always burns. Because it was made from a primal want, the wheels were set in motion so that it would always be wanting, a world of birthing and dying, hunger and feeding, stars smashing into stars, hot galaxies torn from void as if a great self-perpetuating feast were being prepared, and the universe itself both feast and feaster. The Vedic people fed that eternal mouth of the cosmos through fire ritual, pouring butter and milk and grains into their ever-burning fires, for the forces of nature need to be fed, and the great want of the cosmos needs to be fulfilled. And this cosmic want is reflected in the spark of want that exists in all of us. The Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, one of the oldest Upanishads, puts the term kama right at the heart of human experience. Quote, Man consists of desire, comma. as his desire is, so is his determination. As his determination is, so is his deed. Whatever his deed is, that he attains. So, kama in the Vedic vision takes prime importance as one of the four pillars of life, the four proper goals or aims of a human existence, the four purusharthas, which are dharma, which is moral and spiritual and societal duty, artha, prosperity, economy, work, kama, pleasure, love, desire, and moksha, liberation. In this vision, kama is one of the prime reasons we're all here to want, to long, to experience pleasure, to love. Kama is described in texts from this time period in terms of an aesthetic experience of life, in art, in architecture, in food, in literature. The Kama Sutra, only a small part of which relates to sex, describes the aesthetic joy of feeling and taking pleasure in the pleasing things of life. And as with all things Indian, Kama is personified as a deity, Kamadeva, Kamdev, the god of want, desire, the god of love. He's staggeringly gorgeous, shiny black hair, bold black mustache, muscled body. He exudes fragrance and sweetness. Emerald green and mounted on a verdant parrot, he carries a bow made of sugarcane strung with buzzing bees. His five arrows are adorned in flowers, and if one of those floral stalks should happen to pierce you, well, it's all over. Sound familiar? The archer of love? Yes, he's synonymous with Cupid. Eros, from the same Indo-European root mythologies. He's also called Kandarpa, the satisfier, and Pushpadanva, the one with the bow of flowers, Ragavrinta, the stalk of passion, Manmata, the churner of hearts, Madana, intoxicating, and Ratikanta, lord of the seasons. Quote, Kamadeva is often related to the seasons, particularly spring, and the gentle breeze that comes with it. His companions are typically birds, most commonly the cuckoo, the parrot, as well as winged insects such as humming bees. So he's the thrill of longing in springtime, and that feeling of sweetness. He's feeling itself, perhaps, which is why one of his more interesting names is He Who Arises from the Mind. There it is, the mind longs. The cycle of the mind is the cycle of kama, of longing itself.
So Kama stirs universes into being, just as he stirs hearts into action, just as he draws minds from quiet stillness towards some pulsing destination, some climax waiting to happen, some universe waiting to be made, some love waiting to be consummated, all to a soundtrack of pulsing, humming bees. If one were looking for a culprit in this world of sorrow and loss, of craving and lack, of pointless war over things we think we want, of great societal turnings and orientations around immeasurable wants and dissatisfactions, if one were looking for a spiritual explanation for Times Square and its neon altar to steaming cups of noodles and gods of perpetual craving, Kama is an easy target. Because, you know... Kama stirs hearts, and once the heart stirs, who knows what could follow from there? Kingdoms in flames, marriages ruined, spurned lovers dashed upon the rocks. Just look at the history of the Game of Thrones, the real Game of Thrones. Brothers poisoning brothers, Aurangzeb kills his father and his nephew, John the Fearless offs his cousin, Cleopatra marries both her brothers and then takes them both out, allegedly. Suleiman the Magnificent, he kills several of his own sons to keep himself on the throne. Makes you wonder what the word magnificent really meant. You have to do so much backstabbing and manipulating to claim the throne. And then you get to, what, sit on it for a few years or so? So much desire, so much want for that little chair. And that desire, that's all comma, right? And what's it all worth, anyway? What's it all for? Why not just give it all up. These are the questions that the renunciate traditions began asking when they came along around 3,000 years ago. Renounce, they said. This world is a bitter circle of ignorance and desire. Give it all up. Get out of the cycle. And in doing so, they pointed a pretty harsh finger at Kama. Here's a quote. Buddhism sees absolutely no positive aspects of kama. In this tradition, kama refers specifically to desire towards sensual objects and the subsequent joy taken in these things, and is therefore considered a major obstacle upon the path to enlightenment. Kama is listed among the three kinds of craving, trishnas, as well as the five hindrances, or nivaranas, and is identified as one of the most serious defilements. Accordingly, Kamaloka, the realm of sensual pleasure, is considered one of the lowest of the three realms which make up the universe. Throughout the Pali Canon, the demon Mara attempts to prevent the Buddha's inevitable enlightenment with a number of temptations, including Kama. In the Mara Samyutta, Mara appears underneath the Bodhi tree where the Buddha meditates, materializing his three alluring daughters in order to pull the Buddha out of his meditative state. The Buddha is not tempted by the potential pleasures of the flesh, and so proceeds forth unimpeded towards his awakening. And so the message is clear. Dharma triumphs over Kama. Now, I want to insert a parenthetical statement here about Buddhism. I grew up Buddhist. I was told the Buddhist stories as bedtime stories. I learned to meditate at a very, very young age. 
I was immersed first in Zen Buddhism and continued to practice Vajrayana Buddhism into my teens and early 20s. I have a great love and respect for Buddhism. I know that Buddhism brings a lot of peace to troubled hearts, has healed a lot of lives, and offers a profound toolkit for those wanting to work with the primal forces of mind. So when I take some theological jabs at Buddhism, which I'm about to do, it's not out of any kind of animosity. It's in the spirit of discussion, conversation, of sharing ideas about the nature of things. Ultimately, if a path brings one peace of mind and heart, that's what really counts. But what I'm interested in exploring here is this attitude towards kama. For once you literally demonize desire, then that, by extension, leads to a whole series of ripples and ramifications which ultimately end in, what? The sidelining of such central elements of experience as joy, happiness, grief, pain, birth, growth, ultimately, perhaps, the extinction of life itself. The Pali word tana, translated as craving, thirst, is seen as the root of all suffering. Through desire, the world itself comes into being, and so it is a world of perpetually unsatiated craving, beings scrambling after what they think they want, only to find that they still crave. Here's Kalu Rinpoche in his book, The Dharma. Quote, the second of emotional afflictions is desire, which is grasping at the deteriorating aggregates of the three realms. It produces the suffering of existence and causes all the sentient beings of the six types to circle in samsara. It arises from the obscurations of ignorance, end quote. So in this vision, the universe itself is still created from that primal want, that desire, but unlike the Vedic vision, this is not seen as a positive thing, not part of a great natural order that is then reflected in the healthy channeling of want in day-to-day life. Desire is unequivocally, in the Buddhist understanding, to be gotten rid of. Hence these very straightforward words of the Buddha, quote, the extinction of desire is nirvana. So there it is. Just get rid of desire. And along with it, birth, death, life, love. I hate to break it to you, but every time you've seen a quote from the Buddha on Facebook that has the word love in it, it's almost certainly not a quote from the Buddha. Love wasn't exactly in his wheelhouse. Love stirs the mind and heart, stirs universes. And ultimately, what we're looking to do in the Buddhist cosmos is stop that stirring until the waters are utterly unperturbed, a vision which looks a lot like extinction, which is why nirvana means extinction. Now, again, it's understandable why a tradition might take issue with desire. And some Buddhist teachers, mostly Western, have taken it upon themselves to soften the Buddha's words a bit, or at least to make a distinction between what you could call mostly harmless want and addictive craving. Here's Insight Meditation instructor Joseph Goldstein in an article from Tricycle Magazine. Quote, Desire has many meanings. It can be the motivation to do something, to accomplish something, a desire for enlightenment perhaps, or to become more compassionate or to serve. That is a very different mind state from the mind state of craving. The desire of craving, the thirst, the fever of unsatisfied longing, is rooted in greed and attachment, end quote. Such distinctions are important, but in the traditional Buddhist mind, eventually even those motivations need to be rooted out. And trust me, I agree on the craving part. 
I understand the problem of being a slave to short-term impulse. How many issues, personal and planetary, could be avoided if human beings weren't so bound up in craving? But there's something deep to get at here about the nature of things and our place in it. Attunement to deeper cycles of longing and release isn't the same thing as craving. It's being aligned to the pulse of how things are. Let's assume that that which stirs, desire, right? That which stirs creates all this. Stirs up the spiral galaxies and solar systems. Stirs up the great oceans and this living river of blood and milk. This river of antlers and steamy breath and bristling fur and fire and blossoms. Stirs up love and stirs up longing and stirs up strife. And ultimately in its stirring also stirs up pain and suffering. And let's suppose that at the center of all this stirring was a stillness. A still essence that was unmoved by all the stirring. A singularity within this world of aching complexity. Some might say, that's where I want to go. Get me to the still part. Get me to the shelter. Get me away from this messy world. The stillness is better than the movement. But what if that which stirs is just as essential to reality as the stillness at the center? What if ultimately they're one thing, one pulse, and you don't get one without the other? What if, in setting up a hierarchy in which the essence is better than the manifestation itself, we create a dichotomy that leaves half of reality hanging out to dry? Which half? You know, the half that feels, that wants, that longs, that inhales life because it wants to live, that builds shelters to protect babies from the hungry mouths out there in the wild, that smears stones with red ochre, that seeks to understand the cycles of the moon, not as some symbol, not as an ultimately empty exercise, but because the tides of longing are real. The pulse of longing is real. What if when we say, just get rid of the longing, we're turning our back on the way things fundamentally are? And besides, can we just get rid of the longing? Is Kama so easily vanquished? Here's a story that sums it all up. Shiva, the great yogi, had lost his first wife, Sati. He was determined to renounce the world, to transcend, to have nothing to do anymore with day-to-day mundane reality. But the gods were worried. The balance of the relative universe was dependent on Shiva continuing to have offspring. His offspring were needed to offset the power of the forces of the underworld, the Asuras. And so the gods schemed about how they could stir desire within Shiva so that he would take a wife and the balance of manifest reality could be maintained. Which is another way of exploring something that the renunciate traditions have never really resolved. If everyone renounces, then we end up literally extinct. So who did the gods enlist? Who do you enlist when you want to stir things up? Kama, of course. The gods go to Kama, 
and to beautiful Parvati, the daughter of the mountain. And they say, quote, for the sake of the universe, you must excite Shiva. The universe needs that stirring for its fundamental balance. But Shiva wants none of it. He's off transcending, sitting on the mountaintop, absent from the world. He's seen the mess firsthand, and he wants none of the mess. Parvati goes to attend to Shiva during his meditation, bringing him meals and water, waiting on him. He barely notices. But then Kama arrives and strings his sugarcane bow with a line of humming bees and draws forth an arrow of flowers, and each of Kama's arrows has a name, thrill, fascination. Each arrow is a particular facet of longing. And each time an arrow strikes Shiva, something stirs. He's jolted from his meditation. He feels a rush of longing for Parvati. But then he realizes what's happening, and he brushes it off, and he returns to his transcendence again. Finally, Kama resorts to extreme measures. He enters Shiva's body as a buzzing bee, trying to buzz him into a state of longing from the inside out. Shiva realizes what's going on. He expels the bee through his left nostril, and Kama resumes his form, and the two have a great battle, an eternal battle, an eternal circling relationship, one could say, between manifest and unmanifest, transcendent and imminent, death and life, restraint and desire. In the height of the battle, finally, Shiva opens his third eye, and a blazing beam of light erupts from it. Kama is fried to ashes, a little pile of ashes. But at what cost? The annihilation of Kama, say the Puranas, left the entire earth barren and infertile. Lovers no longer woo each other. Poets no longer compose their works. Cows no longer produce milk. Like it or not, the whole universe runs on desire. And... Is Kama really vanquished? He's gone, but Shiva does fall in love with Parvati. Perhaps there's no getting around this urge towards union. There's no separation ultimately possible. And Parvati says, in order for this marriage to be consummated, in other words, in order for the proper functioning of the universe, for Shiva and Parvati are the universe and proper function, in order for this marriage to be consummated, you must revive Kama so that the milk flows, and the infants cry, and the lovers woo, and the sung prayers of the people have something to ride upon to reach their source, which is another way of saying that desire, longing, love, is not optional. It's essential to the fabric of reality itself. So Shiva, the great yogi, kneels. He kneels over Kama's ashes and he weeps. He cries tears of Soma, Tears of lunar nectar that kindle Kama's fire awake again, and Kama awakens. And Shiva distributes the force of Kama, the force of longing throughout the world. He puts some of it in bird calls, and some of it in the voice of bees, and some of it in the voice of poets, and some of it in streams and some of it in ripe mangoes, that ruddy, golden, red-green fruit that aches with longing. So, in this vision, we don't get past longing. 
Longing is the fabric. The imminence is inseparable from the transcendence. We don't find liberation trying to extract ourselves from the ocean of reality, but by understanding, aligning, harmonizing, singing to its deep spaces. There's a film out now called Australia, Rainmakers of the Outback. It's on Al Jazeera. It's up till September 4th, I think. And in it, there's an aboriginal elder named Spider. And a lot of the film is about his relationship with one particular waterhole. And that relationship is visceral, somatic. It is love. It is longing. You should see him talking to the waterhole like the most familiar friend. The waterhole for him is someone to call by name with all his heart. You should see him weeping for the waterhole. You should see the love that goes into the ritual care of the waterhole and how it then becomes a center point in the map of the hearts of the people. That relationship is not something that needs to be gotten beyond. The world as it is now needs more of that longing, more of that want. We have to want her to survive. We have to want to re-sanctify her place in our lives. We have to want for nature to thrive. The relationship between spider and the waterhole is not, as some renunciate traditions would say, insubstantial. It's not ultimately illusory. There's nothing deeper, more primary than the longing that is attuned with great cycles of nature. It's not an overlay on some abstract essence. For essence is indistinguishable from manifestation. Emptiness is form. That's in the Buddhist teachings. The world reveals herself through the specificity and harmony of the garland of her manifest energies. The birth cycle. The moon cycle. This is her. It's all here. It's all encoded within the fabric itself. It's not, by any means, illusion. The renunciate doctrines are good at convincing themselves that they've gotten beneath it all or beyond it all because they take a path that is philosophically fairly easy, the deconstructionist approach to reality. And I'm someone who dabbled with deconstructionism for a certain time period in his life. And in that worldview, once you get to something, anything, any declaration of it is this, then no, it's not that. No, it's not that either. Neti, neti. If I were to say there were an eternal soul, I'd be siding with the Brahmin, says the Buddha. If I were to say there isn't, I'd be siding with the nihilists. It can't ultimately be divine at its heart, for that too would arise conditionally and be empty in nature. It too would be impermanent. So, no, it's not that either. Well, this type of thinking has its relative value. It's good for toppling mental and societal structures that sometimes need to be toppled. But where does it leave the nature spirits, for example, that people may need to interact with deeply and substantively for their very survival? Where does it leave the villager who needs to interact with rain in order to grow the crops that feed the monks who then sit around and ruminate about whether there's any there there or not? 
Where does the renunciate view leave relational complexity within nature, other than something to eventually get beyond? Where does it leave the waterhole if we ultimately say, no, there's nothing inherent to the waterhole, for the waterhole has codependently arisen and there's no one thing that is of its own essence waterhole? Well, tell that to the thirsty. Spend too much time deconstructing the essential nature of the waterhole and miss out on the life-giving water, which is another way of saying that the proponents of doctrines of illusion still need to eat and drink. And the path of mental negation, the path of the deconstructionist, ultimately leads to a void essence that is conceptual rather than actually reflective of how things are in nature. Because ultimately, perhaps, the universe is irreducible as it is. In the story, Shiva and Kama are eternally inseparable, two facets of one primal pulse. Perhaps the empty space that all the neti, 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 not this, not this, not this inquiry ultimately leads to is inseparable from the humming of bees and the red maw of the birth cycle. Perhaps the nirvana, the extinction that the renunciates so eagerly long for, is just itself a tiny ornament on the anklets of the goddess of longing, a small, smooth, black onyx amidst a treasure display of fruiting energies sprung from longing, sprung from yes. So along come the tantric traditions, and they reclaim kama from the clutches of the renunciates. They reify longing and the substantive and meaningful relationality of the forces of nature through harnessing breath and sound and meditations of luminous and deliberately constructed architecture and through a re-sanctification of the goddesses of place and a re-sanctification of the body itself and of Yaksha's tree spirits, and Gandharva's celestial musicians, and Naga's the water spirits, and guardian deities, and fearsome mothers of the cremation ground. The Tantrikas celebrate the red cycle, the cycle of birth, manifestation, blood, life, breath, milk, vermilion powder, and spiraling ram's horns. Because ultimately, no one part of reality is any less than the other, the Tantrikas say. The imminent is not less than the transcendent. The stirring not less than the stillness. The diversity not less than the oneness. All of it, perhaps, is supreme, sacred consciousness itself, which pulses into infinity in infinite waves of longing. So here we come at last to the goddess of longing herself, Kamakya Devi, the shining one of infinite desire, 
whose worship arises in the 8th century or so, but whose temple on the banks of the Brahmaputra River has been a site of goddess worship going back who knows how many thousands of years. And she has the iconography of both Kama and Shiva built into her. She's the whole cycle all in one. She has the sugarcane bow and the flowering arrows. She sits on Shiva's corpse, another way of saying that life arises from death, somethingness from nothingness, existence from non-existence. But there's something very interesting about her. It's common to see the active, dynamic goddesses seated on the inert corpse of Shiva. It's a way of saying that stillness is the substrate out of which all this arises. But in her image, Shiva's corpse is not the substrate. It has one more layer beneath it, even deeper than stillness. The goddess and Shiva are both seated on a blazing golden lion. The lion is the goddess herself, luminous, dynamic, devouring in nature. And the lions at her temple in Assam are depicted as, how shall we say, aroused. So the substrate upon which all this is built, goddess Kamakya shows us, is not inertness. It's not void. It's not no. It is dynamism, luminosity in a perpetual state of aroused devouring, longing to consume and consummate at once, the tearing apart in union of universes all at once, the Greek gods getting it on all at once. Picture it like this. Through the power of longing, the one who is longing tore herself from herself, as she herself is always being torn. And through that red rupture, of course, pours the whole sky and all the little lights within it. Curtains of brass bells, a universe of scintillant finery. Like a split pomegranate in space, she glistens, fractures into infinite treasure, shouts eternal, laughs, roars, gives sound to her pleasure, even as she always listens. Tell me, O goddess of desire, what was the sound when you tore yourself from yourself? There's a red anthem called the world, Ma, and within it all, and beyond it all, is you. And, oh, her temple is a glorious hymn to life. I'm going to do an episode just on her temple because it's something to behold. It's where the womb of the Divine Mother herself is said to have fallen to the earth the womb, the vibrational core at the heart of creation, which receives into itself and emits of itself forever, that pulses an infinite longing, birthing, destroying, longing. At Kamakya, there are a series of rock springs which rise up out of the stone, and each spring has a temple built around it, and each temple is to a different aspect of the mother goddess, in the form of this great and perpetual longing. There are stone images of gods and goddesses in sexual union, and images of death and dismemberment and menstruation. Once a year during the monsoon, the waters of the springs flow red, the fertility cycle of the great goddess, and millions of devotees clamor to her, blowing horns and shouting Jai Ma, victory to the mother, and receiving prasad of strips of cloth dipped in the red water, which they thirstily drink. The temple complex itself is red, the priests wear red, the flowers given at the altar are red hibiscus, 
Red flowers mix with sacrificial goat's blood. The sacrificial posts are adorned with sweet incense and lovingly placed flowers. The devotees honor the goddess by placing their own heads in the sacrificial block. For at the altar of the universe, we're all objects of sacrifice. It's the whole wheel of universal energies right there. It's sex and death and sacrifice and blood and life and flowers and wholeness and separateness, virginity and the breaking of that virginity, devouring and consummation. It is all of it. Because she's showing us. She's showing us that the ultimate substrate is not negation. It's not void. The ultimate substrate is yes. Yes. We have to want this world to live. We have to want it. We have to want to be here with our children. We have to want it. We have to look at them, with them, not past them. We have to want to be here. We have to want to be present. We have to want it. We have to say, yes, this, as it is. And I long, I long to be more present with it. We have to want it. All of it circulates in a divine pulsing yes. The more the physicists look, the more they find this irreducible yes. The more they look, the less possible extinction seems. Reality pulses of itself, by itself, forever. It is longing. No is simply a momentary outbreath, and the in-breath must eternally follow. And what if linking the two were a force so mysterious, so unattainable, so humbling in its vastness, that all we can do is kneel before it and say, yes, perhaps the first and only sound is yes. James Joyce said that yes is acquiescence, self-abandon, relaxation, the end of all resistance, like when we finally say yes to life, to presence, when we finally say yes to the world of birth and of death, the world of longing, the world of fullness, all this. Like Joyce's character Molly Bloom says in her final soliloquy at the end of Ulysses, in which she accepts the proposal of her lover, in which she says yes to life and to the world, a yes that is perhaps needed now more than ever in our relationship with nature and with each other. Quote, Oh, and the sea, the sea crimson sometimes like fire, and the glorious sunsets and the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens, yes, and all the queer little streets and pink and blue and yellow houses, and the rose gardens and the jessamine and geraniums and cactuses, and Gibraltar is a girl where I was a flower of the mountain, yes, when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used. Or shall I wear a red? Yes. 
and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall. And I thought, well, as well him as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me, would I, yes? To say, yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. This episode contains reference to many books and articles. These are God of Desire, Tales of Kamadeva in Sanskrit Story Literature by Catherine Benton, The Rig Veda, The Brahadaranyaka Upanishad, The Dharma by Kalu Rinpoche, Unpacking Desire in Buddhism by Joseph Goldstein in Tricycle Magazine, Australia, Rainmakers of the Outback, a film on Al Jazeera available until September 4th, Shiva, the Erotic Ascetic by Wendy Doniger, The New World Encyclopedia, and, of course, Ulysses by James Joyce. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash, The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. (music) 